Good afternoon from the KLX studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, degrading styrofoams and dinosaur extinction. In addition, we're joined by Peter Moore, who will discuss unnecessary surgeries. We'll also find out what a reciprocating agent is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of the ozone. The ozone? I don't know what that means. Maybe I'm deteriorating. <laughs> Speaking of deterioration. I didn't even realize I was setting you up for something. You're pretty good, man. So what do you do whenever you finish drinking from that styrofoam cup? Do you just dump it in the, uh, on the streets? <laughs> because I don't drink from styrofoam. I use green, friendly products. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I just burn everything, man. It goes in a big black smoke. You must return to the dust from which it came. So, you know, of course, that's one of the concerns is that these styrofoam or polystyrene cups basically last forever. <laughs> Pretty much. They'll survive the heat death of the universe, I think. I'm sure it will. But some polymer chemists have devised a way such that these cups or spoons or whatever plastic utensil that you've made out of it can degrade much faster. And there's several ways to do it. One is to have linkages which can be degraded by bacteria and biologists have been working on that for a very long time. And so what they've done to make this styrene degrade much faster is to feed it to this bacteria called Pseudonomus putida, it's a soil bacteria, and it converts it to a biodegradable form, polyhydroxyalkanoate. Hmm. Sounds very hydrophilic. It might be, actually. I don't know. Yeah. Those alkanoates. Sounds like something could be ionized somehow. Yeah. Anyways, unlike the polystyrene and PHA, which is the uh, abbreviation for polyhydroxyalkanoate, this stuff degrades in water and soil pretty easily. Oh, okay can be washed away and ingested by bacteria that'll break it down or something? Yeah. So, you know, I guess they'll make cell phones out of this. So when you're done, you just dump it and it'll be your fertilizer in 20 days or so. <laughs> and then your lawn can take your call for you. Oh, yeah. This was reported in the April 1st issue of Environmental Science and Technology. Excellent. So do you think it was polystyrene that killed off the dinosaurs? I thought it was LSD. <laughs> <laughs> One bad trip too many, huh? <laughs> yeah. I know they're, they're head, butting their heads a lot in Jurassic Park. <laughs> classic notion of what killed off the dinosaurs was that large asteroid hit the earth and covered the earth, preventing sunlight from penetrating. Uh-huh. But this is all based on a lot of circumstantial evidence. So this is like document in the Bible, right? <laughs> uh, I thought it was in uh, Reader's Digest. <laughs> Isn't that more widely read? So it turns out, though, that all the evidence that supports this theory is basically based on geologic and fossil records. Right. And uh, the iridium ring. And right? the iridium ring. Is- but so now researchers are trying to look at DNA evidence to see mm-hmm. if it also correlates. Mm-hmm. And an international group of researchers has examined mammalian DNA from over 2,500 species, supplemented their findings with some previous published analyses. What they've shown is that mammalian diversity actually didn't increase right after that period where the asteroid apparently hit. Right. But now what they've found is that that group died out and then there was a second explosion okay. of uh, mammalian diversity. Okay. Suggesting that some other event must have happened to trigger sort of a 
second mammalian explosion. An extranatural force. <laughs> Indeed, and uh, it's unclear exactly what that force would it be mm-hmm. and what it's causing it, or even if, in fact, this method is sensitive enough to determine exactly the dates. That's a concern, for example, voiced by evolutionary biologist so Lawrence do both Herney. of these evolutionary explosions happen after the dinosaurs died out? or The first explosion originated after the dinosaurs died out. Right. The second explosion happened some 10 to 15 million years after that. Okay. Actually, after the first mammalian explosion, and uh-huh. some of those species had died out. So I wonder if global warming is going to cause some of us to have superpowers. Ah, much like the heroes. Indeed. <laughs> I think it's just all triggered by an eclipse. <laughs> uh, what's your superpower? I can sleep. <laughs> uh, I'm able to eat, ravenously, <laughs> mm. especially when I'm hungry. If your DNA is not devolved or is not evolving, uh, at least you can hope for uh, no mass extinction. But very fascinating work, and this was actually published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Peter Moore will join us to discuss unnecessary surgeries. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, medical procedures have dramatically evolved during the past half century. Life-saving operations and new drugs have extended the average human lifespan. But along with these advances come the potential for excess and misuse, especially in regards to surgeries. Well, join us today to discuss this issue of unnecessary surgeries is Mr. Peter Moore. Mr. Moore is the editor of Men's Health Magazine, whose recent edition features an article on this subject. Mr. Moore, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure. Uh, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think this is certainly an issue that a lot of people might be interested in. If, if someone gets an advice from their doctor that they need surgeries, they would sort of automatically take this. But you argue in the, the article that there are a lot of unnecessary surgeries that go on. Yeah, the problem is that when our docs say it's time to go under the knife, a lot of us there are helping them sharpen the scalpel by stroking it across the whetstone. We equate surgery with the absolute best, most intensive care that we can get, when in fact a lot of surgery is unnecessary and with surgery comes the usual risk of complications, meaning infections or anesthesiologists blowing it with the dosage of meds to put you under. There are so many things that can go wrong with surgeries that we shouldn't even be thinking about them unless we're very convinced that we need them. So just exactly how widespread are these unnecessary surgeries? Well, the exclamation point started popping all over the offices of Men's Health when we came across a RAND Corporation study from 2004 that estimated there were about 6 million unnecessary surgeries that happened in the U.S. in that year. And the cash register ring on those 6 million surgeries was about $19 billion. It's a huge number. And 6 million unnecessary surgeries is just, you don't want to be among those 6 million people, but clearly many of us are. What's motivating these unnecessary surgeries and are they being done just purely based on a profit motive? Well, I wouldn't actually go that far as to blame doctors to that degree. I mean, the fact is that if you're a doctor going through medical school these days, you too are trained to equate surgery with giving your patients the very best care possible. For doctors, invasive equals good. Uh, For patients too, for instance, one area of surgery that there are about 50,000 unnecessary angioplasties performed on people's heart arteries 
arteries every year. If you have any kind of heart problem, the level of worry and paranoia there is very high. And you might think that if you're having some chest pain, if there's family history of heart attacks, you're going to want that doctor to cut you open, do everything he can to solve that problem for you. So, you know, you have the doctors who are trained over the course of eight years in med school that cutting is the way to do it. And you have patients who are in their own subtle ways putting pressure on their doctors, you know, just cut me open, fix it. And, you know, suddenly you've got the car repair scenario of surgery, meaning that, you know, unless you throw open the hood and open up the valves and, you know, and do something, you're really not treating someone. Whereas what most of us could use as a gasoline additive and we'd be much better off. <laughs> <laughs> and by that, I mean a prescription drug, especially in the case of angioplasties. <laughs> well, you know, what I'm talking about is that there is a, you know, I mentioned there are 50,000 unnecessary angioplasties done. Well, it turns out that medicines that would clear blood clots are as effective as angioplasty in those 50,000 cases. So that if you can swallow something rather than having them cut open your femoral artery and thread a catheter up inside you, you definitely want to go for the drug rather than for the hospital stay. Indeed, indeed. So do you think most people are just more inclined for the uh, the surgery than going for these alternative approaches? Well, yeah. And, the, you know, the doc might be a little bit itchy on the uh, trigger finger to get you down into the radiology lab for the angioplasty because, uh, I mean, I've actually had an angioplasty and that afternoon my insurance company spent $37,000 to have that catheter threaded up inside me in the, in the clot fixed. And I was very grateful to have that procedure done and haven't had any symptoms since then. So I, I am actually convinced that the procedure I had done was necessary. But if it's a, a less acute symptom that you're going for and it's kind of a systemic problem that your doctor is, is worried about but doesn't think that anything bad is going to happen instantly on it, very often the drug therapy will be as effective and certainly uh, fewer risks than you would have from, you know, an actual angioplasty. I see. Another one of the uh, procedures that you mentioned in the article is, of course, the prostate biopsies that are done. And in large cases, these uh, might not even be very effective. Yeah, boy, prostate cancer is a real headache because what uh, doctors are coming up against is a large percentage of the cases, a guy will get prostate cancer, will have it for years and years, and then end up dying from something else. In a, in a certain smaller percentage of the cases, especially virulent cancer, meaning that it's going to grow quickly and kill you quickly. And when guys are presented with that question, do I have the aggressive cancer or do I have the mild one? You know, the evidence isn't quite there yet to really determine between those two. So that there's a whole lot of head scratching going on with prostate, you know, do you go with the, uh, the prostatectomy? Do you rip it out? Do you treat it in other ways? That's a major medical headache and requires a very high level of collaboration between the patient and the doctor to come up with an answer on it. I see. So what are some questions, especially for men, when they're faced with the prospects of this sort of thing to ask their doctor? Well, um, you know what? How necessary is this procedure? That's a great one to start off with. You really want to be doing is to, you, you want your doctor to help you explore every possible procedure short of surgery that can help you avoid the surgery but also fix the problem. So if you ask him how necessary is this procedure, you, know, you would hope that that would launch into a discussion. Well, you know, in your case, we've got to do it tomorrow. Maybe he'll say because of uh, reason X, Y, and Z. Or maybe he might say, well, you know, there are other therapies we could try. Would you prefer that? And that's, if, if you have the time, it absolutely is, is worthwhile to explore other ways of treating something serious. Uh, what are maybe some clues that the doctor might be a little, as you put it, a little too itchy on the trigger finger for getting under the knife there? Well, you know, um, that tendency to, you know, there's a whole cover your butt school of medical thinking to do with, with malpractice settlements where 
put the patient through an arduous group of very expensive diagnostic procedures. They're uncomfortable. They cost a lot. Some of them are uh, questionable use. If your doctor is signing you up for every diagnostic test possible, you know, that's maybe a warning sign. And another thing is that if you're in the guy's office for five minutes, he looks at this, looks at that chart and says, okay, we'll cut you open tomorrow. To me, that says, unless there's some urgency in his voice and a good reason why he says you absolutely need to be cut open tomorrow, you really want to see that doctor who's going to explore other options with you short of surgery to see if maybe there's some other way of getting at the problem and fixing it. Uh, another uh, problem which affects a lot of athletic men, of course, is uh, knee surgery and opinion, huh? Yeah, yeah this, is a, this is a spooky one. For knee and shoulder surgeries, typically they're sports injury uh, sorts of things. It's about 33% of those are done unnecessarily. And the distinction here with knee surgery is between an actual tear in your knee cartilage versus whether or not you just have tendonitis, which is an inflammation of that same cartilage. If they go in and they take an MRI, they're going to notice some tears because any sports guy worth his knee pad will have some tears in his cartilage and they may decide to go in and do surgery based on seeing those tears but the fact is the tear could be there and not be the source of the pain much more likely is that it would be tendonitis that would be the source of the pain and the treatment for that is very simple anti-inflammatories and a few days of rest Hmm. you don't want to go the surgery route if all you need is an aspirin and a few days off Um, So are there any checks and regulations for these types of uh, surgeries? It's a very tricky thing because, you know, doctors don't want to be reined in on kind of uh, therapies that they uh, recommend for their patients. And you know what? If you have a smart doctor, he'll take you through the protocols that stop short of surgery to see if there's, you know, other ways to fix the problem. But there are other kinds of doctors out there who think when in doubt, cut it out. And I've explained that there are reasons why a doctor might feel that way, including uh, threat of malpractice if he misses something and doesn't do a surgery. So that's where it's incumbent on the patient. Ultimately, it's your knee, your heart on the line, and you need to be careful enough to ask around, get good recommendations on your doctor, and don't be at all afraid of, quote unquote, insulting the guy by saying you want to get a second opinion. Make sure that that second opinion is outside of the of the office where you've gotten that first opinion so that you can really get a fresh look and a fresh take on the problem that you've got before you go under the knife. I mean, you really do need to insist on that second opinion and then you can sort it out given the approaches that the two doctors take and make your decision based on your gut feeling and and the information that you're given by the doctors and nurses in question. Right, right. Probably want to stress that if a surgery is necessary, probably do want to take it, right? Well, yeah. And the fact is, I didn't mess around when it came time for my angioplasty. I was having very specific symptoms. The things that they were telling me about the blockage that I had really caused me a lot of concern. And in the end, I'm glad I went through with the angioplasty. But if my symptoms had been different, if they had been milder, if there had been alternatives to that, I certainly would have considered those. And that's where everybody has to make their own mind up. You know, how acute is this problem? Quickly is the threat that they could do lasting damage to me, how quickly do we have to act here? Is this an emergency or is it something that we can play out over time? And the right doctor will help you make that decision. Indeed, indeed. The other issue here is, of course, that all these unnecessary surgeries, they wind up costing the insurance uh, companies and, of course, in the end, are premiums. Yeah, they do. And, you know, that's where we have to look at this standard approach that we all have to medical care now. You know, we're kind of extremists. We're heading right to the brink very quickly on so many medical procedures. And there's so much expensive medical technology out there that's available that Americans equate expensive health care with good health care. And what we really need to be thinking about is 
is preventive health care first and reserving those expensive machines for further on down the line when it's been demonstrated that the surgical option or the extreme option is really the only one that will work for us. Do you think uh, more doctors now are, are being trained in, in terms of the uh, preventative approach with medicine? Yeah, I mean, there's a certain school of thought on that, but I wouldn't say it's the one that is the most common, certainly. Mm-hmm. That's where, again, it, it pays as a patient to look for a doctor who very willing to explore alternatives, to let you try some things that might be able to mitigate the problem, you know, in a less invasive way, who will uh, advise you on lifestyle changes that can help you avoid problems in the first place. All those approaches, you know, the more you know, they can keep the scalpel away from your tender skin. And really, the extent that we can avoid that, not going to hospitals, tackling problems before they become big ones, that means that our health care costs are going to be reduced, our risk is going to be reduced, and, you know, we're going to be able to lead healthier lives. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, the article is in a recent edition of uh, Men's Health Magazine, and if uh, people want to check that out. I'm sure, well, you know, it's on every newsstand. Uh, they can also go to menshealth.com and uh, check out surgeries there. All right. Well, very good. Uh, Well, Mr. Moore, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show and talking about this very fascinating issue. It was my pleasure. And you were just listening to Peter Moore discussing unnecessary surgeries. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 plus the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. It's, uh, of course, our game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic necessary or unnecessary surgery. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if it would be necessary or unnecessary to put the people under the knife. Mr. Moore, you ready to play the game? I'm so ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, necessary or unnecessary, Paris Hilton. I think we should just cut Paris Hilton out altogether, so that would be a necessary uh, (laughs) surgery. All right. Uh, Number two is golfer Phil Mickelson. Oh, poor Phil. You know what? Let's let's go ahead and help him out. Uh, You know, we want that wrist back in shape, and we want Tiger to have some credible threats to his reign. Indeed, indeed. Make it more exciting out there. Yep. (laughs) All right, number three is uh, talk show host Jerry Springer. 
Wow. Yeah, I, I think I put him in the Paris range as far as being a necessary surgery. You know, we need to cut out that intemperate mess that is uh, Jerry Springer on TV. <laughs> okay. Uh, number four, Donald Trump. Wow. Okay, so we're talking hair transplant here, right? <laughs> you know, anything to get rid of uh, the comb over, I say necessary. Okay, very good. All right, and finally, number five, the president of the United States, George Bush. Wow. Bush definitely needs to be trimmed. Also necessary. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, well, Mr. Moore, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing our game and, of course, talking about the men's health article on unnecessary surgeries. You're very welcome. Hmm, and Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. A reciprocating engine, what it is. Hmm, also known as a piston engine. It converts the pressure, not the force, into rotating motion. And that is a reciprocating engine. Nature, in its explicable glory, creates structures for us to see, to hear, to taste. But how does the retina see? If you know you are indeed a hero, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you just might see the power. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lane. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Thank you.